Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. I'm Pastor Chris, one of the pastors here at Foothill, and it's good to have you here on this beautiful weekend. And let me just echo what Stephen said. Uh, it's uh, going to be a great week with our growth group sign, uh, signups uh, continuing and starting this week, the actual growth groups. And I want to encourage you to be in it, man. Um, God does some of his greatest work in relationships. We want to see everybody in one of those. And, uh, and so for those of you who are like, I, what, what happens in those? There's an explanation on that catalog, but it's really most of them are, are just unpacking what happens in this sermon and uh, being able to go away and talk about it and, and uh, sort of apply it to your life in, in a deeper way. But most of all, really, starting to develop and continue to develop gospel-centered friendships. So I want to encourage you to do that. Don't wait another week if you haven't signed up. Get involved in those and, uh, and get started in, in that kind of gospel community, okay? Well, let's grab our Bibles and go to Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, it's on page 1008. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 22. Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 22. And I'm going to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, grab one that's sitting around near you. Follow along. I think it'll help you kind of process what we're saying, and you can read along, because we just kind of take it one verse at a time as we walk through this. And uh, last time we ended up on verse 12, and uh, next time we'll pick up at verse 23 and just keep marching through. So it's real helpful if you have a, a Bible in your lap and can just sort of turn as we, as we go and, and uh, follow along, okay? When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors was a man um, by the name of Howard Hendricks, fairly well known um, in the seminary and uh, teaching world. And, and we used to call him Prof. And, uh, and Prof uh, said to us on more than one occasion, guys, um, if you read your Bible, you're gonna notice that for every, for every hundred men or women who start well, very few end well. Right? I mean, this is just sort of this theme through scripture that you see these people start well, but they don't end well. They, they, they start off, you know, like gangbusters. And I, I look and I say, you know, this is not true of just people in the Bible. It's true of life. Like how many marriages do you know that started well, but didn't end well? Jobs that started well, but didn't end well. School that started well, but didn't end well. There seems to be this sort of pattern to human life. But what the Bible also teaches is it really doesn't matter how you start. What really matters is how you end. That, that's really the most important is how does it all finally end? It doesn't matter. I mean, so you look at a guy like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul starts off, I mean, a religious zealot, a guy who persecutes Christians. He hates Christ. He hates God. Uh, he hates the church. I mean, he, he just, he's just anti anything New Testament, basically. And he goes and persecutes and he uh, even participates in the murder of Christians and then God transforms his life. And Paul will write at the very end of his life, I mean, he is, he is going to be executed. Church history says he was beheaded uh, by the Roman Empire. And right before he dies, he writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, here I am at the end. I fought the good fight. fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He kept his faith all the way through the end. Now, this is what the writer of Hebrews is really keen on you and I getting. It really doesn't matter how you start. It's how you end. And will you keep your faith until the very end? Or will you punt? Will you abandon? Will you go back to your former life? And so he's been building this case and saying, why would you want to? Christ is greater. Christ is better. He, he's, he's better than any other thing, any other person that you could serve or worship. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the angels. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better, better, better. Why would you want to go back? Then he gets to ver uh, chapter 11 and he begins to say, okay, here are people 
that lived by faith. Here are people who stuck it out until the very end. Some didn't start off that great. Some maybe had rocky middles, but they all finished well. They all finished well. And so the question really he's going to help us answer today is how do we keep the faith until the very end? How do we end well? How do we make it through? So you're going to see, and what are we going to do? We're going to spend most of our time in verses 13 through 16. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time at the end on verses 17 through 22 because here's how it will break down. In verses 13 to 16, he's going to take us inside. So, so far, we've sort of seen these amazing men and women of faith. We'll continue to see them in the weeks to come. But, but he's going to take us sort of inside of them. What, what's going on? What are the motivations? And then he's going to show us how it works out in their life. Okay, that's kind of how this passage breaks down for you. So the first thing that, that the writer of Hebrews wants to see is, let's go inside. Let me show you the heart of faith. Okay, so let's start reading in, uh, in verse 13. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, the first question we have to answer, and let's stop there just for a second, is who are these? Who are the these that he's talking about? Because that could refer backward to all the people he's already discussed, or it could look forward to the people he's going to tell us about. And I'm going to suggest he's talking about people forward. He's talking about verses 17 through 22. He's not talking about verses 1 through 12. And here's why I say that. Because he goes on to say, these, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, which is true of everyone in verses 17 through 22. It's not true of everyone in verses 1 through 12. And everything in verse 17 through 22 in some ways is hinged on a death of some sorts. So I want you to see they, they ended well, okay? So he says, he says, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So not this, they didn't have this. They didn't actually physically possess the promises of God, but they did see them. They did have something else. Now this is really a really important part of your faith that you need to understand. And as you read your Bible, that most of the promises of God are not for this life. Most of the promises of God are for the life to come. Now, hear me, I didn't say there are no promises of God for this life because all kinds of promises, right? I mean, Jesus says, you know, in this world you will have trouble. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's for this life. James says, Anyone, any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives generously without reproach. That's for this world. Paul says, man, if you'll think about whatever is true and noble and pure and lovely and honorable and commendable, if you'll think about these things, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus right now. He says, if you'll imitate me and what you see and what you've learned, what you've heard, what you've received from me, if you'll do these things, actually practice them, the God of peace will be with you right now. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I, 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 I will be with you until the end of the age, Matthew chapter 28. That's for right now. There's all kinds of wonderful promises that God says, all, I'm going to give these to you right now. But most of the promises, think about this. Right, there is this kingdom of God swirling around us beyond this veil that we cannot see. And when that is finally open, when we finally enter into our promise that God has given us, then everything's made perfect. And I, I can say without reservation, all our dreams come true in that moment. 
So, so these are not all for this life, and that's a really crucial thing for us to understand. These people understood that. They had a heart transformed by faith. But now watch this, because what he's going to do is say, okay, so they, they have been given this gift of faith. God, God gave them this gift. Now look at, look at the things sort of start percolating out of that. Look at the benefits of having this, uh, this uh, heart of faith. And the first thing I want you to see is they get new eyes. So keep reading. He says, they haven't received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So they don't have this, what do they have? They have eyes. They can see things and they greet them from afar. In other words, they got something that carried them through the peaks and valleys and it was this unique vision. They saw something with absolute clarity and that ability to see that carried them through. Let them make it until the very end. I love how he says that. They saw and they greeted. I was talking to somebody between the service and they're reminding me that it's like, remember, remember those, those posters that you would walk up to and, and um, I think if you were colorblind, you couldn't see. I mean, there's no way, but, but like you could walk up to them and you'd like be staring at them. If you got your head just right and your eyes focused right, you could actually start to see an image come through. Do you remember these? Like they were like 10 years ago. Does anybody remember this? Am I just the only one? Okay, good. Thank you. And there'd be, people would be like, oh my gosh, I see it. What? What? Right? I don't see it, Right? What is it? It's, it's, it's like a, it's a sword or it's a cross or it's the tomb or, you know, whatever, something. And, and, and other people are going, I, 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 I don't see it. I don't, I don't have it, right? Well, some people see and some people don't. This is faith. But he says that they see and they greeted. That word literally means to greet means to embrace, to kiss, like these promises are so real. They have seen them so vividly. It's as though they're here and they embrace them and say, I want these. I want these more than anything. I thought about that. I thought, how do we, how do we think about that? So I, remembered, I remember when I was um, first dating Michelle. She's my wife, those of you who don't know. And uh, she, uh, she, she and I started dating the, the end of her senior year in college. And it was the end of my junior year. And so she graduates and she goes home for the summer. And so, you know, you're, you're star-crossed, you know, lovers. You're, you're just like, I, you can't wait to see each other again. And, and these were in the days when there was no cell phone and there wasn't even email and there was no sort of, you know, chatting via video, nothing like that. I didn't even have a computer, right? I mean, literally, those are the days that we were in. We had to call on, remember landlines? Anybody remember landlines, right? You, you, and, and your parents had to pay the cost. Sorry, mom and dad right, because it was long distance and all that, so, so we get on the phone, but we, there was, like, I want to see you. I actually want to see you, so I fortunately got to get on a plane in the middle of that summer of 1988 and uh, got, to, got to see her. Now, here's what happened. So I fly into Charlotte, North Carolina, and these are also the days, some of you will remember, when you could actually walk up to the gate and greet the passengers getting off the plane, right, <laughs> pre-9-11. So I get off the plane and I'm sort of, you know, going a little mouse trail, winding my way out, and it's got this glass, and I'm looking through the glass, and I'm, you know, my eyes are just attuned, right? And finally, I catch a glimpse of Michelle. Now, so you've been in this situation. You can't wait to see this person, and you finally see them. Now, what do you do? Do you go, well, I'm not with you yet, so no greeting. I'm just gonna keep walking, and then when I finally see you, I'll greet you. No, you, you see them from afar, and you greet them, don't you? You like 
embrace them with your eyes. You're people are like, ah, like they're just, they're so excited to see one another, right? You, that, that, that's what he's talking about. This is the eyes of faith. I see you, but I can't get to you quite yet. And I, and I greet you and I embrace you and I kiss you. It's as though you're mine already. Your imagination is so engaged. Your understanding, your vision is so real of what Christ, what God has laid up for you, what is waiting for you, that nothing's gonna take you off that. See, see, they got new eyes. But the second thing they got is a new confession. Now watch this. Look at, keep going. So they, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So, so this heart of faith gives us new eyes, but it also gives us a new confession. Now why do I say confession? He says they acknowledged. You see that word acknowledged? Um, we kind of can tend to use that word as like I acknowledge somebody's presence, like, you know, hi, you're here, right? I mean, sort of a head nod towards something. It's not that at all. The word acknowledge there is actually the same exact word for a confession or an admission. In other words, this is a fact that I know to be true and it's settled in my mind as true. And so I, I admit it, I confess it. They acknowledge this. This is the same word, by the way, that John will use in 1 John 1, 9, where he says, if you'll confess your sins, same word, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's John talking about? Is he saying, if you'll list out every sin you've ever had before God? Now, I think what he's saying is if you'll acknowledge, if you'll admit to the fact that you are a sinful person, if you'll understand this and you'll admit that, you'll say, God, this is true. He will, he will be faithful and just to forgive you. These people acknowledge something. What did they acknowledge? What did they confess to be true? That they were strangers and exiles. Now you see this? Like they, they got to a place in their walk with Christ, they got to a place in their faith where they said, like, like this is not my home. <laughs> And I actually believe that. I don't just say that. That isn't just religious platitudes. This isn't some song I sing. I honestly believe this. I am a stranger and an exile in this world. This is absolutely crucial to your faith. Stephen talked about it last week. I don't know if you remember when he was talking about giving and, 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 and encouraging us to give. One of the reasons we give is because this isn't our home and there is a home coming. There is a kingdom coming that we are gonna be a part of. And when we lay up all of our treasures on earth, it's like going to a hotel room, he said, and pulling down the curtains and putting up your own and pulling down the, the, you know, the, the, the pictures and putting up your own, right? Trying to redecorate. People are like, what are you doing? This is just a hotel, Oh, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like it's, this, is, this is what I want, right? This is now. No, no, no. These people, people who endure to the end, recognize that they are strangers and aliens. So you got to admit that. you got to come to a place where you realize this world is fantastic. God has given us so much in this world, but it's not our home. Like there's something more that God has for us. See, here's one of my concerns. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that, that Christians in this room listen to me, that some of you will buy into this cultural narrative that we're told that in this life, all your dreams can and should come true. 
Christians do not talk like this. That is not a Christian worldview. Do you understand this? God never intended all your dreams to come true in this life. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here. Like, that's just a fact. If, if all your hopes and dreams could actually come true as Disney tells us they can, if that could actually happen in this life, then there would be no way that you would ever want to be where God is. See, I actually believe that God kills as many dreams as he fulfills. And it's not because he's being mean. God's never mean. In fact, it's because he loves you. Because those dreams have become idols to you. And those idols will ultimately kill you. And God doesn't want to kill you. He wants you to live. See, but some of us think, yeah, 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 you know, I'll have, I'll have everything I ever wanted. No, God never intended you to have everything you ever wanted. He wants to, in fact, detach your affections from this world and attach them to him and to his kingdom. You ever thought about this? That I was just reading something this week that reminded me. You know that all of life, like, like to live is to lose. Like there's loss. A fundamental part of life is loss. Every, everyone, right? If you, if, you, if you don't know that yet, you're, you're, you're maybe not even in college, right? You, you, if you not experienced any loss, you're very young. And I'm just telling you now, hear me, believe me later, right? Loss is coming to every single human being, right? Sometimes loss becomes, comes just as a natural consequences of bad choices we make. You lose a marriage because you made a bad choice. You lose a relationship because you made a bad choice. You lose a job. You lose all kinds of things, but you can lose your health because you made a bad choice. It's a loss. Sometimes, sometimes we lose and, and, or, or we, we, we experience loss just because we live in a fallen, imperfect world. Right? People die. That's loss. My dad died two years ago. That's a terrible loss. It's a horrible thing. But then we lose in all other kinds of ways because we live in a fallen world. Like, like when I was in high school, I could actually palm a basketball and dunk it, believe it or not. I was not like some great athlete, but I could. I mean, today, if I, I can barely touch the net. That's loss, Right? You start to lose your energy. You start to lose your physical ability. I get out of bed now and I'm like, why is this pain here? In fact, why is it always here? I'm, I'm gonna, I got three girls. And someday I'm going to lose them to three chumps who are going to come and take them away from me. <laughs> right? Because I live in a fallen world and some idiot gets her and I can say goodbye to my daughter. There's all kinds of loss. Sometimes we lose in a fallen world because we get, you know, you get 40 years old and you look around and you're like, you know what? This is not what I thought was going to be my life right now. And here's the thing. Loss is always painful, isn't it? In fact, we wouldn't call it loss if we were like, ooh, love that. I just lost my daughter. Yee-hoo! You know. I can't jump anymore. I can barely walk. This is great. No, it's always, 
painful and hurts. And I want to suggest to you that, that the, the degree of the pain is directly related to the degree of your attachment to this world. Because what God is doing is this. He's, he's if you will, ripping away your attachment from this world. I mean, slowly like a bandage, slowly like Velcro, just sort of slowly peeling back through loss so that you start to go, you know what? I've, I've, there's all this loss over in this column and there's all this gain over in this column of what I'm looking forward to. I mean, talk to anybody. That's what I love about being around people who are, you know, 20, 30 years older than me that have walked with Jesus. They get to a place in their life where they've experienced loss. They've experienced losses of all kinds. And yet, and yet there is a sweetness to them that isn't bitter over the loss, what it has done is it's caused them to desire what's to come. Actually makes heaven more sweet. My mom tells the story of my, my great-grandma, her grandma, who uh, uh, was this you know, wonderful, you know, sort of brash Irish woman from what she says, a hilarious lady. I never got a chance to meet her, but she said that as she lay dying, uh, she was in her bed, and, and um, she called all the family to her, and my, my mom was a little girl at the time, and um, she goes up to her grandma, Grandma Spencer, and says, you know, she, her, she says, you know, Dee, I'm, 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 this, is, this is it, and I love you, and she's cr- my mom is crying, like, Grandma, don't talk like that. No, 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 you're not going to. And she said her grandma got a little bit stern with her. My mom's name is Dolores and she says Dolores don't you understand this is the day I've been waiting for my whole life like don't you stop me from this moment right this is what happens God detaches us so that now now I've got I've got this new acknowledgement this new confession that this is not my home I belong to another world. I'm passing through and this has now become a reality and God has used loss not to squash me but to be gracious and peel me away from this world and rivet myself on him. Let's keep going because then he also gives a new pursuit. So let's start reading in verse 14. He says, for people who speak thus. How? What is he talking about? Say things like, this is not my home. I'm just passing through, right? I'm a sojourner. I'm just, this is a temporary, this is a hotel room. People who talk like that make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. See, who talks like this? Who actually talks and says, this is not my home? This is like a hotel room. Only people who are seeking something greater. Only people who have been given through a heart of faith, a new pursuit. See, that, that word seeking, it's a very, it's a, it's a really kind of a cool word. Um, and let, let me just give you a really brief uh, Greek lesson just to help you understand something. In the Greek language, there are root words, and then there are these prefixes very often that they will add to that root word to, to do something with it. It sort of changes the nuance and the meaning of it. Sometimes that, that prefix is added to emphasize, sort of take the word and blow it up. 
And so that's what this was happening in this word seeking. This is not a casual seeking. So, so the Greek word, the root word of just looking around and seeking is zeteo. But, but the writer of Hebrews doesn't use that. He, he uses another word. He attaches this prefix, and it's the prefix epi. Epi zeteo. We use the prefix epi in our language. When we talk about the very center of an earthquake, we call it the epicenter, right? Same exact. That's where we get it from. Here's what he's saying. They are seeking a homeland. It is a massive pursuit of their life. It is this over-pursuit. It's a, it's, it's a life calling. It's a central motivation of their life. I don't care if they're a plumber, a doctor, a lawyer, a pastor, a teacher. It doesn't matter. Fundamentally, down deep, the central motivation of their life is seeking this new homeland. There is, I, this is not my home. See, everybody has an epizeteo. Everybody, everybody in here has this central motivation, something that they are seeking and pursuing. Right? It could be money, it could be family, it could be children, it could be fame, significance, it could be a job, a career. There's all kinds of things that people seek after that is a central motivation of their heart. These people, that thing was a new homeland, was something beyond the veil of death where all their dreams would come true. And they really believe this. But, but there's something else. He actually sort of picking up on that theme. They had a new desire. So, so now watch this. If they had been thinking, verse 15, of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So, so he's now kind of sort of getting in their thought life. They didn't think, and that word thinking, by the way, is not just a casual thought about their former life and what they've come from. This is, this is saying they didn't go back to it again and again and again. They didn't recall it to their memory. They didn't dwell on that. They didn't dwell on this home. They didn't dwell on what they were missing. They didn't dwell on all the things that they aren't able to accomplish in this life. That's not where their mind dwelled. And there's a reason that it didn't dwell there. It's because they thought about something else. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. I'm not dwelling on everything I'm missing in this life. I'm dwelling on there. I won't miss out on a thing because I have a heavenly dwelling that I'm shooting for. You see what's percolating up in their hearts? There's a desire. There's a hunger. There's something new that is formed in them that says, man, I want this more than anything. And there's nothing around here that makes me want that less. In fact, it makes me want it more. So, I mean, imagine, uh, imagine I came to you today and I said, um, I'm a very wealthy man, so you have to imagine. Um, and, and I, right now, I'm going to offer you $100,000 in cash. I'll give it to you right now. Now begin to just think right now with me. What could you do with $100,000? You pay off credit cards, pay off a car, buy a new car, whatever. I could, maybe some of you, that would pay off the rest of your house. I don't know. You, there's all kinds of things you think, wow, $100,000, I could pay for school. I could, there's a lot I could do with $100,000. I was about to give you the briefcase. I'm like, but, but, but. You know, you can take door number one and here's what it has. Or you can wait 10 years 
and I will guarantee, I will give you a hundred million dollars. I don't know anybody that wouldn't take that, right? They'd be like, um, there's not an investment that I could possibly think of other than a drug cartel that would turn that $100,000 into $10 million. I will live in the gutter for 10 years if that's what it takes to get the $100,000. It doesn't matter. I can go through the ups and downs of this life. It really doesn't matter. I'm going to get $100 million. You see what I mean? Now, now let, me, let me take you back to verse 13 for a second. Do you, do you see what I mean when he says, they see it from afar and welcome it, embrace it, kiss it? Those 10 years, you would be seeing that promise fulfilled. You'd be dreaming, you'd be desiring, you'd be thinking. You wouldn't be thinking about, oh man, I just gave up $100,000. You'd be thinking, oh, but I get, it's only nine more years. Oh, it's only eight more years. Here it comes, it's coming, and I get $100 million. See, see this, is, um, this gives you a brand new desire. Now please, I'm not, I'm not saying you're gonna get money. That's what we're talking about here. I'm, I'm saying, do, do you see how, how that works? The $100,000 is chump change. This is salvation. Here's what happens. You, you, you want to know what a Christian is? Because some of you have this idea that to be a Christian means be, you become this goody two-shoes, this sort of morality person, that there's this list of do's and don'ts that you have to follow. That's what it ultimately means. It's this religious thing for you. No, no, no. Christianity what happens when you become a Christian is fundamentally you have a brand new desire, a brand new central motivation, a brand new pursuit. I'm now seeking for something I never sought before. I'm now desiring something I never desired before. There's things I hate now that I used to love. There's things I love now that I used to hate. There's all this new motivation. This is what happened to these people. When God gave them the heart of faith, when God gave them the gift of faith, it gave them new pursuits. It gave them new desires. This is, this is fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. See, faith sees all these promises from far off. Faith goes, you know what? I want them more than anything in the world. That there is nothing else in this world. Faith looks at the world and what it has to offer. Faith looks at God's promises and what it has to offer and says, no comparison. I want it. But now, now look how he ends verse 16. He says, therefore, okay, so I'm gonna, he's concluding all these things. God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Why is God not ashamed to be called their God? And he answers, he says, because he's prepared them a city. What does he mean by that? You know, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Like, I'm going, now here's what he means. I'm not ashamed to call you, to call you my child. I'm not ashamed to be your God, to be your father. Because what you've done, if verses 13 through 15 are true of you, first part of verse 16 even are true of you, 
Then you know what you do? You know what your life looks like? You sit there and go, this is not my home. You, 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 I, I can actually see, touch, feel, taste all the riches of this world and I would gladly set them aside for what I know to be the promises of God. God has given me a new vision. I can see in that picture. I understand what's going on and I want those riches more than I want anything else in this life. And God says, when you do that, when you prefer what is unseen to what is seen, you honor me. You show that you believe me. You show that I and my, you actually are are showing that you, you believe I will not go back on one of my promises. And you believe I must be a very wealthy, valuable, wonderful God for you to give up all that for this. And when you do that, I am so proud of you, son. I am so proud of you, daughter. And don't you want to hear Jesus say that? Chris, I'm so proud of you, man. That's the heart of faith. He looks and says, man, I, I want this more than anything. But now, now look, and let's quickly look through verses 17 through 22, because what I want you to see is the legacy of, of faith. So let's start reading in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, that is Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, that is Isaac, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which Figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back. This comes from Genesis chapter 22. It's this, it's this just amazing story. God has already called Abraham. He's told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. You've never had a son before. I'm going to give you the son, and he's going to be the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. Your offspring, all the promise I said are going to come through the line of Isaac. And then in chapter 22, God goes, now take Isaac, go up on Mount Moriah and kill him. This is just what he's saying. And Abraham takes him and he raises the knife up. And in that moment, angel of the Lord appears, Abraham stop, and there's another offering. And God says, now I see that you would not, you, you would go through with offering your only son. And it said it was credited to him as righteousness. See, this is what faith does. Faith goes, I will, if you will, raise the knife over my head and plunge it into the promise of God because if God promised, then what seems humanly impossible to me, he will still fulfill. I don't get it, God. Have you ever felt like this? God, you're not making sense to me. You promised me. Now I kill him? Abraham goes, okay, because apparently if I do, God told me, God will not break his promise. He has made an oath. And that means if I kill him, he is going to raise my one and only son from the dead. See, Christian, we have a choice. Every day. When, when God seems hard to understand, when God uh, doesn't make sense, when God says, obey, 
and obedience feels like, I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I can go through it. We got a, we got a choice. We can either rationalize away our, our obedience or we can go, what seems humanly impossible to me, apparently God will bring about because he's never lied to me. He will always keep his promises and I can trust him. Have you ever done this? Have you ever gotten to a fork in the road where one fork is disobedience and one fork is obedience and, and you sit there and you think, if I don't disobey clearly what God has told me to do, I don't see, I don't see a good way out of this. In fact, I, I see only sort of destruction. I see only bad things. I only see things that will be harmful to me. I can't possibly see the good in this. God, you're asking me to stay in a marriage. God, you're asking me to be sexually pure. God, you're asking me not to compromise. You're asking me not to cheat on my expense report or to lie on my taxes when I think if I could do that, then I could get a few more dollars because I got this bill to pay and God, I got to get that. And, and you want me to look bad in creditors' eyes? And nobody will know. God, I got to cheat on this exam because I know my future and if I lose on this exam, then bad things happen. I mean, there's all kinds of, there's that fork in the road. And the question is, do you obey or do you disobey? Will you look and go, God, I will obey. And that's what faith will do. And I'll leave the consequences up to you. That's the logic of faith. That's Abraham. Abraham goes, this doesn't make sense, but Okay. And then look, here's what struck me. Abraham does this. And now verses uh, 20 to 22 is is his family. That's why I call it a legacy of faith, right? He exercises his faith. And look at the ripple effect. Look at the generation after generation after generation. Isaac follows him to the end until faith. Jacob follows him to the end in faith. Joseph follows him to the end in faith. I mean, you know the stories? You can read about them in Genesis. So, so, so Isaac gets to his deathbed and he blesses, he talks about blessing Jacob and Esau. If you go back, they're really kind of prophecies. Esau, this is gonna happen to you. Jacob, this is gonna happen to you. I believe this in faith, in other words. And exactly what Isaac prophesies happens. Jacob comes to the end of his life. They're in Egypt at this point because Joseph has been dragged to Egypt and now all of Israel and his family, Jacob and his family come to Egypt And as Jacob lay dying, Joseph says, I'm going to bring him my sons that he'd bless them. Now, let me explain to you what happened in in Jewish tradition, the way that that would happen. You would, you you know, a grandfather, you know, I, I would bring, say, my children. Let's say I had an older and a younger. I would bring them to the grandfather and bless them, right, their grandfather. And so here's what they would do in, in the Jewish tradition. They would put them in front of the one who is blessing, and the lesser one, that is the younger one, would go on the left, and the, and the superior one, the older one, would go on the right. The older always had the place of preference in the family. In fact, they received a double blessing. So here, here's Joseph, and he brings his two sons, Ephraim 
and Manasseh. Ephraim is on Jacob's left. Manasseh is on Jacob's right. And what Jacob was supposed to do is put his right hand on Manasseh and his left hand on Ephraim. You follow so far? The, the greater and the lesser. Joseph brings his children. His dad can barely get up. He walks up to him. They bow before him. And Jacob takes his hands and crosses them. And he puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. And Joseph goes, Dad, no, 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 no. I know you can't see very well, so take your hands. This is the older, this is the younger. And he says, no, Jacob, this is the way it's going to be. And he blesses them. Ephraim, you're going to be greater than your brother Manasseh. And that's exactly what happens. Joseph gets to the end of his life. Look what it says. That he's, you know, his bones were carried up. Joseph gets to the end of his life and he goes, he goes, you know what? I'm dying. I'm going to die in Egypt. I'm supposed to be in the promised land in Israel. So, so, so make me a promise that someday through faith, I believe, I see that God is showing me that someday the children of Israel will be brought out of Egypt and go back into the promised land. And when that happens, take my bones, my mummified bones, take them back to Israel. And you open up the book of Exodus, God delivers 400 years later the children of Israel from Egypt and you'll read that they took Joseph's bones back to Israel. Is this legacy? I mean, it all starts with one guy. It starts with this man named Abraham. And I want to clear up any notion that you might think about Abraham. Abraham wasn't this guy who had this great legacy of faith behind him. He wasn't this guy who knew how to be a man of God. He wasn't this man who had sort of grown up, you know, hearing from God and reading his Bible and just sort of knew how to do this. He was a pagan man who had never heard the name of God before God appeared to him, Jehovah God in the Old Testament, and called him out, saving him, setting him apart. And saying to him, I'm taking you now and you're going to hear from me and now you obey me. See, some of us in this room have been handed graciously by God. We are the products of a legacy of faith. Like we have moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and great grandparents who walked with Jesus and we look and say, man, what would my life be like if they had not done that? And some of you look and go, but that's not me. There is no legacy. My mom and dad did not walk with God. My grandma and grandpa did not. I mean, I, it, there, there's nothing in my past. And there wasn't in Abraham's either. And God would say to you, it can start with you. The cycle of dysfunction, the cycle of brokenness, the cycle of not understanding how to walk in wisdom can end with you and a legacy can start today. And it simply starts like this and continues like this. It looks and says, okay, God, you've said something. I hear it and I'll obey it. That, 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 that's faith. 
See, the writer of Hebrews isn't necessarily telling you, hey, be like Abraham, right, and leave everything and go, or, or sacrifice your son. He's not saying, we don't imitate that. He's saying, I want you to see what's inside their hearts. I want you to see what motivated them. I want you to see how they behaved in the face of God's commands. And I'm asking you to do the same thing. So, so let, me, let me end with the questions of faith. Okay, three questions that I think we need to ask ourselves. Like, are we people of faith? Are we, are we people that are walking with God? Ask yourself these questions. Number one, did God say it? That is, that is the first question that a man or a woman will ask. Did he say it? Did he actually say that? Now, where do we find that? Do you find that because uh, uh, from a pastor? Do you find that from a committee? Do you find that from a teacher? You find it right here, right? Because we have a Bible. Now, some people will say, well, yeah, but Chris, there's all kinds of translations, and, you know, that's your interpretation. And all. Let me say something. That's, um, that's nonsense. That's an excuse that people use to say, well, see, the Bible isn't clear. One of the great truths of the Reformation is that you don't need a priest, you don't need a pastor to tell you everything your Bible says. So then why are you up there? God gave us pastors. He gave us preachers. He gave us, but here's the thing about your Bible. You can open it up. A third grader could open it up today. And I'm not saying they'd understand everything, but what they need to be saved, what they need to live a life of holiness before God is plain to them. It's not hidden. There's not some, you know, cryptogram in here that we got to decipher. It's very plain. And so we go to scripture and go, did God, did you actually say this? That's the first question, because if he said it, right, then that leads us to have to answer a second question. Do you believe it? Right? These, are, these are totally different issues, right? I can see that God said it, but do I believe it? Do I actually believe the truths that Scripture reveals to me that are plain, that are not ambiguous? So I don't have to wonder, what's God saying there? That seems odd. That seems weird. No, no, no. For example, do you believe what Scripture says about Jesus? John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. What's John's point? Jesus is God. There's a lot more we could say about that, but that's fundamentally what he's saying. Do you you believe that? Do you believe what it says about salvation? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is not another avenue. There is no other name under heaven whereby a man or woman, a boy or girl can be saved. But Jesus, you don't go through any other. There's no other intermediary between God and us. Do you believe that? There, He said it. He's not being ambiguous here. Do you believe it? Do you believe what he said what what God said about judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Is that hazy? Do you believe it? Do you believe what it says about riches? You put the next one up. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you believe that? He said it. Do you believe what it says about purity? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That means your holiness. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust and like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You see what happens when you... If you commit sexual morality with somebody else, you're wronging not only yourself, but your brother. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Did God say it? Yes. Do you believe it? Totally different question. So if you answer yes, God said it. Yes, I believe it. And the final question you have to answer is this. Will you obey it? Read, just read chapter 11 again. That's all that's happening in chapter 11. They heard God. They believed him, really believed him. And they actually obeyed him. You wanna, you wanna make it to the end? You wanna not punt? You wanna end well and not just start well? The life of faith is, did God say it? Do you believe it? And will you obey it? It's pretty easy. And yet it's impossible apart from the grace of God. And it all starts with the heart of faith. It all starts with this gift that God gives to you. And now you have the gift. Now, now, hear me. I've said it. Believe me. And now go do it. Let's pray.